0: Welcome to Indigenous Earth Community Podcast, where we talk to indigenous conservation heroes from around the beautiful world who are honoring the traditions of protecting the planet. I'm your host, Frank Oscar Weaver. Join today, I was going to be learning traditional ecological knowledge to inspire us to become better stewards of the earth. What if I told you there was a way to combine traditional ecological knowledge with Western science to create a more holistic approach to environmental protection. In this episode, we're going to talk just about that. Our guest is Susan Chibolo, an assistant professor of the School of Environmental Sciences in Ontario, Canada, and a traditional water protector who is bridging Western science with indigenous knowledge. We're going to be talking about Susan's involvement in water walk, ceremonies, and working with traditional ecological knowledge elders that has given her a profound insight into her unique responsibilities that Anishbeck women have to protect water and their natural world. We have
1: some movement towards working with Indigenous knowledge and Western science Side by side. There are many people out there that really understand how that can be done. I think the next generation of people coming up have such a great opportunity to really explore how best to do that and giving that respect and recognition to Indigenous
0: peoples and their knowledge. Susan now is going to introduce herself in her traditional language.
1: Ketaganzi being in Dogam, so my English name is Sue Chiblo. I'm from Garden River First Nation, where I also live, and I am an assistant professor at the University of Guelph in their new program for a Bachelor's of Science in Indigenous Knowledge and Practice.
0: Susan now is going to share with us how it was growing up in a reservation, and how that experience made her a deep connection to nature and traditional Indigenous practices.
1: Well, it was awesome growing up on the Rez. Um, from my experience, we lived on a point, so we're surrounded by water, the River and the St. Mary's River. And I grew up in a single-parent home, who was, um, which was my father, which was really unusual back then for growing up in um, a single-parent home with a father. And there was eight of us in total. Um, I, I'm in between my four brothers, so everything they did, I did. Um, and my father used to take us into the bush Um, He took us into the bush all the time for fishing, in the wintertime, in the spring, in the summer. Um, We also went in harvesting. We did have a TV, but he'd never let us watch it. So we were always outside. Uh, We grew up with canoes around us, boats around us. Uh, We all knew how to swim. We knew how to run through the bush. We knew how to use um, guns, slingshots all of those types of things. And we ate a lot, of, um, a lot of the foods that were around us.
0: So Susan, how was your involvement in ceremonies, water walks, and working with traditional ecological knowledge with the elders influenced your understanding of the unique responsibilities and connection the Anishinaabe woman have with water and the natural world? And how has this shaped your approach to environmental protection and advocacy?
1: So I'm guided by ceremony because I'm Anishinaabe Kwe. I choose to um, live this way. And with everything that I do, spirit comes first. So for this educational journey, my grandmother told me way back when that I had to go to school and learn their ways and come home and work for our people. And so I took those instructions to heart and I did my bachelor's of science. And then I did a master's degree, and then I thought I was done. I was done with school, with being dictated to, regurgitation, memory, because it's not a really good it's not a it's not a really good way to learn. So <clears throat> I worked with uh, I worked with some elders. There. They call themselves the TK elders, traditional ecological knowledge elders. And one of them has suggested that I needed to go back to school, so and get my PhD so that I have access to all different kinds of pots of fundings that isn't driven by government and is driven by what um, they wanted. So that's what I uh, did ceremony. And pretty much from ceremony, it told me that I need to do, and and the word is need here, I need to do what um, is good for me so that I can continue to help our people. And that was pretty much the messaging that I got so, yeah, so I went back to do my PhD. And because I used to work for the Chiefs of Ontario, which is a coordinating um, body for 133 First Nations in Ontario, I was their environmental um, coordinator. And in that position, we had developed a water declaration. So it is called the Anishinaabek Mishkigawak Ongwe Ongwe water declaration in Ontario. And that was back in 2008. And it was amazing because growing up around these two rivers um, in a single parent home and as a young girl um, wanting to get away from the boys, I always had a relationship with the water. I just didn't understand what it was. It was always very comforting for me to go hide and sit by the water by myself. And so moving into um, a career, then the water declaration comes along so I've participated in um, Grandmother Josephine Baugh Mandamin's water walks, where she walked <clears throat> she walked around every one of the single uh, uh, of the Great Lakes and the Saint Lawrence, and then we did the uh, Mother Earth water walk, which was the four directional water walk. And so, what I've decided to do with my PhD, or what I w- was encouraged to do, is to work with. Um, Grassroots peoples, grandmothers, grandfathers, um, knowledge holders, people who aren't normally in the conversation when it comes to how do we protect the water. So, yeah, so that's what I did. Um, And out of that came a couple, came my PhD, but along with um, a couple papers. So I I participate in water ceremonies. Um, I've been gifted the bundle to conduct water ceremonies. And just participating in those water walks really, really helped me understand what my responsibilities are as an Anishinaabe woman because women are the only ones that can carry that water lodge, if we so choose. Um, We mirror mirror, um, the earth by bringing forth life. Only women and the earth can bring forth life. And so because we have that and how we bring forth life is we mirror the earth when the spring waters rush through, you see new life coming forward. And typically, when women give birth, the waters rush through, and then that new life comes forward. And inside that water lodge is where the child grows for, what is it, for, supposed to be 40 weeks. So only women can do that. And that gives us um, a unique responsibility to the waters, to Nibah. Um, and also, though, we always talk about, um, in the colonial way, we always talk about managing the water and managing the forest. But that's not what, from an Anishinaabek perspective, because we are part of the forest. We are part of that water. And we are part of those cycles that the water goes through, um, that the, the suns go through. And so this also connects us to the sky world. And in a lot of times, um, colonial systems do not even talk about the sky world. So I wanted also to explore that. And when we look at Nokomis Gizis, um, Grandmother Moon, women mirror also mirror her. She goes through 28-day cycles. Women go through 28-day cycles. Um, and she empties herself when <clears throat> at the full moon, women also empty themselves. So there's a lot of connections that women have um, with response with unique responsibilities. And, and I'm not saying that men aren't supposed to be there. Um, By all means, they have a responsibility to support the women, to protect the women and to support the women in all of the work that we need to do. So those were, I think, kind of uh, key messaging that came out of all of those conversations, water ceremony, participating in, um the water walks
0: so you've been talking about connecting with your ancestors and being true to yourself i wonder you know people that are listening in right now there might be indigenous youth who are going to western schools how can they keep that strong bond with their heritage
1: i've always said indigenous peoples are like the most intelligent people on in the world look at how we learn and um the languages that we have the unique languages the relationships that we have with the land the understandings, you know, I'll give an example, a snowshoe. We invented the snowshoes, Indigenous peoples, and nothing has ever been invented. Sure, they've modified it, but they haven't reinvented it. We look at maple syrup. We're the ones as Anishinaabe people that did that. And no other society has done anything like that. Look, look here in Canada, the English um, the colonizers have only been here for, what, roughly 500 years and we've mastered their language we've mastered their education systems we've mastered their governance systems and this just goes to show uh, to me anyways demonstrates to me that actually how intelligent we are as indigenous peoples so i think that um you know if if you really want to pursue a career or pursue education in the western institution never forget where you came from and who you are as an indigenous person and that's the most important thing um, learning all of those other systems is great because then you understand how cl- colonizers actually work. But I think it, what is more important is to remember who you are and who you need to be and where you actually come from. Never let that go.
0: So let's say that you're not indigenous, but you still want to find your life's purpose. You know, what advice would you have for that?
1: You know, I always I always connect back to what um to my ancestors. So I, I always guide myself through ceremony. But it's it's really up to each individual to find out what their responsibilities are, what their unique gifts are, because my understandings of the Anishinaabe teachings is that every single one of us were given gifts. We are all given a voice and understanding, learning and, and trying to understand who you are and what you need to be, who you need to be, not what society wants us to be, not what um, our fathers or mothers want us to be. We all have within ourselves um, who we are supposed to be and who we need to be.
0: What are some of the challenges that you face when you're trying to gap Western science with Indigenous traditional practices and knowledge?
1: Is for bringing those two types of knowledge together is that Western science outweighs Indigenous knowledge systems or Indigenous science. The colonial worldview, the Western worldview—they don't understand our knowledge, so they dismiss it, um, and that—and that is a huge challenge. But fortunately, Canada is like, um, you know, like a two-year-old. They um, copy what other people, what other countries do, because Canada really is brand new. It's still a, it's still an infant in its development, and so they copy what other people do. Well, internationally, Indigenous knowledge has come to the forefront as knowledge that um, really works with sustainability. Um, So Canada has decided also, too, that they need to work with Indigenous knowledge. And what they've done is they put um, in, in a couple of their acts, so the Species at Risk Act has... Um, some quotes in it, some information in it about Aboriginal knowledge, using the best available knowledges <clears throat> to assess species at risk. Did. And then more recently, <clears throat> the Impact Assessment Act also has in there that Indigenous knowledge needs to be used in assessments when conducting assessments. So we have some movement towards working with Indigenous knowledge and Western science side by side. But there are many scholars that have done that. Um, there are many people out there that really understand how that can be done. It's, I think the next generation of people coming up have such a great opportunity to really explore how best to do that and giving that respect and recognition to Indigenous peoples and their knowledge.
0: How can non-Indigenous people have a better understanding and respect the worldview that Indigenous people have that all living beings, you know, are alive and have a spirit and everything is uh, interconnected. And, you know, what st- steps they can take to better uh, protect, you know, the water, the uh, the animals, and also stand with solidarity with those uh, indigenous perspectives and knowledges.
1: In a version of the Anishinaabe creation story, um all the animals and plants are created prior to man, um, prior to humans. And then humans are put down on the earth um, on Turtle Island. And so when you actually think about that, all of the plants, the animals, all of the other beings are all imbued with spirit. That is a West, that is an indigenous um understanding, part of our worldview, whereas the Western worldview thinks of the animals and the plants and all of the other beings as a resource, something that they can control and manage. Um, But from an Indigenous worldview, we understand and we know that everything is imbued with spirit and that they are our relatives. They are our teachers. Um, They are our brothers and sisters. And they too have their responsibilities and how they actually give up, sacrifice their own lives so that we as humans can still maintain life on this planet so i think you know and, and in the western worldview, view they think that you can put um so much arsenic in the water and it'll be fine um so they actually allow the canadian government anyways their regulations actually allow poisoning to happen um from an indigenous perspective that's it's almost like it's against the law. And in Indigenous peoples, we do have um, laws. And in Anishinaabek people, we have four levels of law. And I am by no means an expert in that area. I know um, a few people that have a lot more knowledge than me in that, ex- in that area. But our laws say that if, um, you know, the, the old people always say that if you, can't, um, if you can't drink it, then it can't go in the water. If it's going to hurt one blade of grass, then it can't happen and thinking about you know those those words and how that guides us in our relationships and understanding our responsibilities to our relatives and our responsibility is to honor them and to respect them it's not to go out and t- try and get the biggest moose so that we can hang this trophy on our wall um there's absolutely two totally different world views and understanding that that moose is sacrificing It's life so that we can have food. I think those are key components of Indigenous knowledge that contrasts um, Western science. And I think it's really important if the people need to, everybody has a responsibility to the land, not just Indigenous peoples. Like, we're not the only ones that are supposed to take care of the land. All peoples are supposed to do this. All peoples need to take care of the water, not just Indigenous peoples. Like They keep putting all of that weight on us. And because we're so awesome, we can handle it. But I always try to tell um, people that everyone has a responsibility to take care of the lands and everyone has a responsibility to take care of the waters. And as Indigenous peoples, um, you know, in... The people that are here on Turtle Island, which is known as Canada, the US, and Mexico, they came from somewhere. And I always recommend to people find out where you came from, trace your ancestors back, because at some point you may have been indigenous on a whole totally different, separate pieces of lands, and you would have had your own laws and your own responsibilities. <clears throat> so, what are those? Find out what they are, do your own homework. Don't come knocking on my door and trying to steal my knowledge so that you can use it. Find find what your own stuff is. And I always recommend that. And when I ask people to do an introductions, I always ask them, so who's your grandma? Who's your grandfather? Who's your great-grandparents? And then they start to see where they actually came from and how long they've been on our lands. Because on Turtle Island, all of these lands are ours. There's no such thing as crown land. The crown doesn't live here. Crown lives over in England somewhere. So these are all Indigenous lands. And understanding that you're on somebody else's lands and having that respect for those lands, I think is is very important in and then building a relationship with those lands. Um, so people that are on our lands have the responsibility to understand whose lands that they're on, what our governance systems actually look like, and have that respect for that and work with the indigenous peoples, not necessarily um walk in and extract knowledge, but stand with us. And I think Kim Talbert um, talks about this really well about how non-indigenous peoples can stand with indigenous peoples, and that means standing with our knowledge, standing with our worldviews, with our understandings, and helping carry that knowledge, carry that. Um, worldview forward in terms of understanding that everything out there is our relative. The rocks, they have, they have spirit. They're imbued with spirit. The water, everything out there.
0: So as we wrap up here the episode, I always like to ask my guests, what is the one thing that people that are listening to this podcast can do at home to be more sustainable? What tip do you have for them?
1: So, for every individual everybody every in home what I what I challenge people to do is find out where you, where does your water come from you know you, you turn on your tap and it's there but where does it actually come from does it come from the underground uh, River systems does it come from the lake um like Lake Ontario for example Toronto gets their water from Lake Ontario so when you're at that lake and you're at that body of water you realize that you have that connection because you're you, you you're, that water is in your home to help you cook to help you clean to do all of these things and I challenge people and of course if you have you know a physical condition that doesn't enable you to accept the challenges that's fine there's other ways that you can um, think about um, being in relationship with the waters and you looking at the things inside your home um, you know whether it's wood or marble or metal those all of those things originally came from the earth and so all of those things gave up, your li- gave up their lives so that we could live in comfort, so that we could turn on the tap and have water. So I challenge people um, to find out where their water actually comes from. And if you're in a schooling system and if you're a teacher, you can do um, all kinds of fun activities where the water fountain, um, there's so many young people that are have that gift to be able to express story through art. And being able to paint a water fountain um, from a lake or with, from a mountain with the water flowing down so that people connect that water actually comes from nature. It just doesn't come from our tap, that it actually comes from outside somewhere. And if we're swimming in that water, that water can also be coming into our homes after it's been treated be our drinking water. So I also challenge people, people to do things like um, go a day without water. That means no coffee. That means cooking without water. That means no, you cannot flush the toilet. That means you cannot brush your teeth with water. You have to use, a, um, however you, you can do it other other way. No, there's no taking a shower. Try to do that for an eight hour period and see. And and for indigenous people, it's really easy because I grew up, um, we didn't have running water. We had to go haul it. So a bucket of water lasted us a very long time because if you're hauling it in minus 16 degrees weather, which is what it is outside right now, you really, really appreciated every drop of that water. And so going without water um, really starts to get you to understand exactly how much you rely on it. And I think, um, you know, Waterless Wednesdays, um, finding out where your water comes from, potentially mapping it throughout the city, because there's all kinds of pipes underneath you, and where do those pipes run? Um, Where were the original creeks and rivers prior to the cement paving over? Um, and and thinking about all of those water systems that were there prior to us um, building cities and having that relationship with the water. Um, also, to I uh, think, um, you know, like I used to, I, and I've done this with my teenage, my, when my children were teenagers, I did Waterless Wednesdays with them. And as a teenager, I think that was the most challenging thing they've ever had to do in their life because then they had to go to school, and they, they're like, well, I'm going to take a shower at school. It's like, no, 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 you cannot use water for the day. So it was very challenging for the teenagers, but they survived. They lived. Um, but also, so I used to say things like uh, we could have meatless Mondays, um, waterless Wednesdays, and then thankful, gratefulness Fridays. So everything that's happening, you're just expressing gratitude towards all of life um, in your home, in your office, wherever, in your vehicle, wherever you may be. So, yeah, so I challenge people to do uh, those kinds of small things as individuals. And when you're in your home and you're trying to figure out where your water comes from, that's like a great conversation to engage family, um, to engage um, your children, to engage neighbors on understanding where your water comes from. Now, miigwech.
0: Wow, what a great idea. You know, an adventure to follow the pipes and to see where water comes from. I love that idea. And also, Waterless Wednesday Challenge, you know, going a whole day without using water, no showers, no coffee, no flushing toilet. I think it's a fun and really eye-opening way to understand how much we rely on water. So thank you so much for giving us those uh, ideas. I hope that people take on the challenge. uh, Hashtag Waterless Wednesday. And uh, Susan, right now I have a card uh, with uh, random words that I made. And I'm going to pick a word. And I want you to tell me uh, the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear it. And let me uh, pick a card here. And your card, uh, the word is sky.
1: Oh, beautiful. The sky world, I love it. My, my name Um, I have two spirit names, one when I was younger, and then one as I um, picked up more responsibilities and understood what my responsibilities are. Um, And they're related to the sky world. So I just think that's so awesome. Um, And what I do a lot of times is I'll just lay where I live. I'm very fortunate to be surrounded by the water and to have, the bush right there and the field right there. So a lot of times I just lay out there and just admire the sky world. Um, Looking, keeping my imagination working because I think that's so important to um, to keep my imagination working and looking at the clouds and seeing the images in the clouds because as we seem to age, for some reason, we stop using that section of our brain. And I think it's so important to be able to keep our imagination working. And and I think it helps um, us heal in any um against any traumas or any things that we may be going through um because if you look at a child and how a child's imagination is so amazing and being able and they're and they're happy and they're um being able to remember that um through the sky world and through my names i think is a a great responsibility and then a really funny story Uh, i have a dog His name is Pharaoh um, from the Greek uh, landlords, and he's a border collie, and he chases the birds in the sky. So I have squirrels all over the place, and he'll walk by the squirrel, but if a bird flies over in the sky, he starts chasing it, and he will just hoof it, and I have to call him back, otherwise he'll end up on the highway or out in the river, I don't know. But yeah, so he's a sky, he's, we call him um, a, a sky dog, because he's watching the sky all the time.
0: Thank you so much for sharing that. What a funny story with a dog. Uh, Susan, I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being in this podcast. I have learned a lot from you. Uh, Thank you for uh, sharing your knowledge with us. And uh, I really appreciate it. So thank you again.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me.
0: And that's it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. I really appreciate you sticking around all the way to the end. I hope you enjoy this exploration of indigenous knowledge, Western science, and our deep relationship to water. And I hope you have learned something along the way today. Now it's your turn. It's up to you to, uh, to make a difference. So I hope that you take the challenge of the Waterless Wednesday, either going a whole day without water or maybe up to eight hours just to kind of give you the recognition of how important water is to our life. And if you do that, let me know how it goes. I'm, I'm interested to, to know. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Give us a review because that really what boosts us and motivates us to continue creating more episodes for you. So thank you so much. I look forward to be with you very soon. Ago